Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Jeanette Chia is an award-winning education technology and business leader based in Melbourne, Australia, and raised across the U.S., Japan, and Australia. As CEO and founder of Hex, she's dedicated to transforming young people into the innovators the world needs tomorrow and seeing the next generation of talent thrive. Hex prepares students for the fast-changing global workforce with the tech and design skills they need to close the future skills gap and the entrepreneurial mindsets employers want, using programs that are immersive, seriously fun, and academically aligned. Previously, Jeanette spent 14 years building innovation solutions, marketing strategies, and digital products for some of Australia's corporate giants, including ANZ, AXA, AMP, and Origin Energy. Jeanette Chia, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Hi, Alex. It's great to be here. So, Jeanette, you have a long history of entrepreneurship and business innovation roles at a wide variety of places, at companies, at universities. You've worked with accelerators. You've worked with community groups. Tell us a little bit about your background and how that all led to you entering the EdTech world with Hex. Yeah, it's been a pretty interesting journey so far, Alex. I mean, I think, you know, I was pretty much the embodiment of the very linear career and learning path. You know, my parents are both pretty focused on education and I did the the very typical business degree, work at the bank, uh, all that kind of good corporate stuff. I even learned the violin since the age of two, so I am a complete stereotype. <laughs> but I think when, I, when it came to launching Hex, I drew on probably two key experiences in my life. And one of those was a memory of being 14 and having to choose my electives for year nine, which I think is kind of maybe a sort of a sophomore year in the States. And I was paralyzed with anxiety, thinking that if I chose the wrong subjects at that young age, I was going to be tracking myself on the wrong path for the rest of my life. And so I do have this strong memory of kind of being afraid of making that wrong choice at a young age. And then again, once I was working at one of my bank roles, I was so excited about the idea of kind of entrepreneurship and exploring different things. And I had a supportive manager at that time who gave me what I now refer to as uh, startup parental leave. (laughs) So like three and a half months of, of, you know, unpaid leave to go and like birth this startup, but with the job security that I could come back and and go back to my job. So, I mean, those two kind of experiences really led me to launch Hex, you know, having that fear of a linear career path and then kind of the the ability to go and explore something with a safety net. Well, that's great. You you just raised a round for Hex, so congratulations on that. That's just very news right off the presses, so that's really exciting. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about what, of course, it's great. Let's talk about what Hex really is. So Hex stands for Hacker Exchange and is designed to build the capacity of next-generation founders, helping people launch high-impact, globally competitive companies that create lasting economic and social value. So that's a quote from the site. And I I read that as, you know, creating opportunities for social impact entrepreneurs. Is that correct? Or break that down for us and our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So HEX does stand for Hacker Exchange. And I guess, you know, we can definitely talk a little bit about the evolution of the business. But every time I thought about the words Hacker Exchange, I didn't necessarily think about it as 
the hacker in the basement with the hoodie. It was more about growth hacking. What can you do with a limited amount of time and resources and how far can you go? So our mission really is to sort of empower these next generation leaders because I get out of bed in the morning wanting to see a different kind of leader in tech, in business, in politics. And I think one of the ways to do that is to get a more diverse cohort of students understanding the the impact they can make through entrepreneurship, understanding the cool stuff they can do if they get into tech early, and understanding that you don't actually have to be in tech to be in a tech adjacent career. So so yeah, so in terms of empowering that those leaders there's definitely impact thread through there as well. And, and I think that's a, a real trend we're seeing in young people today. So you mentioned that a formative experience behind Hex was when you had to make a choice of your electives in school and you felt like making the wrong choice was going to be a real, you know, send you, track you in the wrong direction. <laughs> um, yes. And, you know, part of what Hex is about is offering the, an innovation gap year, sort of the opportunity to really pursue entrepreneurial spirit. Tell us about what an innovation gap year is. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the innovation gap year is the most recent iteration of the way we're achieving our mission. So I'm going to backtrack mm-hmm. a little bit for you, Alex. When we first launched Hex, we were flying, physically flying students in groups to places like Silicon Valley or Singapore to immerse them in the uh, startup ecosystems in those cities because we wanted students to experience what it was like to be in that fast paced environment, to unleash their entrepreneurial dreams, etc. What we have now evolved to, especially with the the restrictions on travel that we're all very familiar with, uh, we've evolved to this innovation gap year. And what it is, is this combination of giving students that space to explore tech, innovation, future ethics, leadership, while also giving them the safety net of academic credit towards their degrees. So we're focused very heavily on the high school lever market and also possibly university gap year students or university dropouts. They want something else. They want the space to explore, but they don't want that to mean that they're falling behind in their studies. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. So, so yes, those formative experiences definitely add up. That idea of a uh, startup parental leave where you can step away from your current track, but actually try something new without fear that you have stepped off the track and you can't get back on. Exactly. And I really think that this is the, this is kind of like one of the guiding lights of our, our business is that we don't believe in linear career paths. Mm. I think more and more we're seeing people explore the, the gig, gig economy career. We're seeing people kind of do the side hustle. There's a lot more creative opportunity for students and for workers these days. And so uh, I think that the myth of get on a career ladder and just keep climbing in one direction is, is, it's completely gone these days. We need to be able to equip students for, a future where they could be moving left, right, diagonal, up, down, all through their careers, all be on multiple paths at once. Absolutely. And that is over the last few decades and over the different generations, that idea of a linear career path has gone from sort of something that was relatively common to extremely uncommon. And Mm. it's very future oriented to see it as probably not coming back. You you mentioned that you're you're working with the next generation of leaders and you're looking for, you know, diverse leaders. One of the hallmarks of millennials and the Gen Z generations is they tend to be more purpose driven. You know, they uh, one mm. survey staff base said that 84 percent of Gen Z workers say they'd like to do more purposeful work than they already do. They want to make impact on the world. But it also seems like they're not always finding that kind of purpose. A different poll shows that more than half of workers that are 18 to 24 are planning to switch jobs in the next year. Uh, And that was actually before the pandemic. So you have 
people who are really want to make an impact, but they're not seeing it in their current work. Uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, you spend a lot of time with young entrepreneurs and idealists. How do you see that desire to find purpose and make a positive impact on the world playing out? I mean, we definitely have seen over the last few years an increasing trend towards this passion for purpose-driven work and purpose-driven entrepreneurship. I think it's a real loss to employers to not be harnessing this natural vibe that the, the Gen Z workers are coming in with. So if you're an employer, I would definitely encourage you to think about how can you harness that energy? How can you help connect your, you know, your workforce's passion with the mission of your organization and, and sort of add that purpose driven piece into into their roles. And I guess what we're seeing, I mean, it, it takes forms in many different ways, Alex. Like sometimes mm-hmm. we'll see a student finish a HEX program and then maybe it's six months later, maybe it's a year later, maybe it's straight away, but they'll launch a social enterprise. So we've definitely seen students doing everything right. from, you know, launching maybe maybe a great eco uh, crockery and cutlery kind of brand, which is, you know, all made out of recycled plant material. Um, there's a really interesting startup out of Tasmania, right down the bottom of the world, where a young a young student has actually won, a, won part of the Elon Musk X Prize to support his work in turning old oil rigs into seaweed farms to help reduce pollution in the ocean. So, I mean, they can take many different forms. And probably the other fun thing is seeing people go back into their, what you'd maybe consider a traditional corporate career or a, like inverted commas, normal career, but flex that impact muscle in in that role. And I think that's kind of what excites me. It's seeing, seeing these young folk go into different, different spaces and kind of agitate for change no matter where they go. And I see my job and our job at Hex is kind of helping them get enough confidence, enough new economy communication skills, and also just enough self-reflection so that when they are in those roles and they've got those opportunities, they don't feel like they need to wait 15 years in their career before they speak up. They'll do it straight away. Mm, I love that. That, that. that makes so much sense. So, you know, the type of skills and the type of mission-driven ethos that young people are are coming to the table with can be used in multiple formats. They can go and start an amazing climate tech startup or a social impact startup like these the oil rig. It's a really fascinating. <laughs> Even yeah. if they go into, you know, a, a, a bank or a university or a uh, consulting firm, they go in still being able to sort of make that mission driven, you know, make that mission happen mm. and have impact. They don't feel like they have to sit in the back and and just do whatever whatever the company tells them. I'm sure that's very empowering. Yeah, it, it's really great. And I think the more we siege that in different places, I just really believe there'll be a, ch- a tide of change. And if you look around, and as I said before, you know, I, I do look at the the leadership in in big business, big tech and politics, and I just I just wake up hoping and just going to evolve with the times and start representing the population that it serves. So this is this is one way that I'm making my very small contribution to that change by uh, sending these sending these students out to the world with a, a little few few more skills and some more confidence. That's fantastic. And you know, in the original iteration of Hex, you were physically bringing students, uh, especially maybe underrepresented students, but ones who wouldn't have access to this kind of Silicon Valley tech ecosystem physically bringing them into the ecosystem. Tell us a little bit more about how in a COVID world, in a, you know, with this innovation gap year, how are you helping them build those communication skills and that industry knowledge, even without having them have to get on a plane and get off at in Singapore or Palo Alto? 
Yeah, it was definitely one of those moments. I mean, we, I'll tell you a little story. We were um, we were three days away from flying from Melbourne to Austin for a South by Southwest conference with the Australian government. And we were about to do some big mission there with a bunch of students and lots of founders three days before that flight took off, the, the, the border slammed shut. So, I mean, you know, I think we had to, we had to move pretty quickly like everyone did into, into that decision of what am I going to do next? And the way that we've kind of approached that, that problem is probably twofold. And one is to really recognize that the global work environment, like our network didn't disappear. You know, our, our friends in different cities and countries didn't disappear. And actually the students were really, really hungry to sort of get to know their peers in other markets. So we, we very quickly put together a couple of experimental programs. We, we launched something called the Great Global Challenge, which connected, I think it was 300 students across 17 time zones in cross, cross-cultural teams to give them the chance to almost do a relay race around time zones. And we designed that for academic credit as well. So you ended up with this group of students that were having to not only learn innovation and build something together as a team, but they were learning new workplace skills on the fly at the same time that every professional in the world was learning them, how to communicate remotely, how to do great sort of virtual whiteboarding sessions, how to build stuff and give each other feedback when you're working in different places. So you know, approaching it from a, a real workplace challenge perspective is something we do regularly. And I guess the other thing that we, we've done is kind of combined learning with community. So we definitely see asynchronous learning as, you know, we see the value in, in, in like purely asynchronous learning, but we're also uh, strong believers in go together and, and you're, you're stronger. So we've built out Hex Ed, which is the learning kind of environment, which has the great content that we provide around tech and innovation. And then we also have Hex World, which is more of the community space where they get to hang out with mentors from great industry partners. They meet each other from around the world. They can have a bit of a chat. There's a bit of social stuff. So we want to make sure that they're practicing those skills that way. And we do find that the mentorship and just having industry in the room and and seeing the students holding their own in that space it just makes all the difference to their confidence. The fact that they sat in a room virtually with a professional or a VC or something, and it does it does wonders for their confidence. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, necessity is has been the mother of invention yes. for these last <laughs> couple of years. So I remember that South by Southwest moment. It was March 2020, and they were not. <laughs> they didn't know what was going to happen until just a few days before. So yeah, uh, <laughs> it was devastating for for so many people, and I'm sure for the organizers too. Oh. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, Lots of planning goes into a trip like that. So one through line of your work is that you've always championed entrepreneurs and founders from underrepresented groups in business, uh, including women, non-binary, Asian Americans, and people of color. And, you know, as a female founder in EdTech yourself, I wanted to ask you, and somebody who pays a lot of attention to this, 76% of classroom teachers worldwide, I believe, are female. But the majority of founders, including the majority of founders we've talked to so far on this podcast, as well as operators and and certainly investors, are still male. And I'm curious if you feel like this is beginning to change. And if so, uh, what factors do you think are, are beginning to change this or which factors are maintaining the gender imbalance in ed tech? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, we do know that in Australia, only 25% of founders of EdTechs are women, right. which is kind of in, in complete opposite to what you just said about the number of women in uh, teaching roles. And I just, I wonder whether or not there's something, there's something in the mix of 
education calls a lot of women to to that to that sort of industry, but technology still tends to call a lot of men. I'm just putting this out there. It's just a bit of a hot take. I wonder if it's <laughs> kind of like the ed ed piece. Um, it attracts you know the female the female leaders, whereas the tech. Yeah, anyway, we can cut that bit out because I just rambled and said the same thing twice. But yeah, but a bit of a t- hot take there. I just I just wonder whether or not there is some kind of we're just seeing the long tail of implicit uh, bias that told girls that they sh- they'd be great teachers and boys that they'd be great engineers. And so potentially there's something which we can we can change there in terms of, you know, and that's part of the work we do is try to let people know that just because they don't necessarily know how to code Python doesn't mean they can't be a technology founder. I mean, I myself am not an engineer or a coder, but I see myself as being tech fluent, <laughs> tech adjacent, a tech mm-hmm. a startup founder, because I use the power of technology to achieve my mission and achieve my um, my business goals. So, yeah. So, I mean, I would love to see see this shift, and I think it is it's a really tricky question, Alice, because it is completely systemic. I mean, I could go off onto a very long tangent about the fact that only three percent ish of VC money still goes to women founders, and I think that that is a complete loss. On the part of the investors, I mean, what a what an underrepresented and what a um, what a lost opportunity to make some great money. So, <laughs> but I, I would like to see, you know, and I think as I said before, that change in leadership, you're only going to see it when more people feel that they have, you know, the power and the knowledge and the skills and the support to actually put their stick their head above the parapet and launch something, build something. So, I see it as a very personal thing that I am visible. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to be have your photo on media or to be on stage or to do panels or even talk to you today. But I do see it as a very, I mean, not that this is an uncomfortable conversation, but, you know, I think I do see it as very much part of my role to be a visible woman in edtech leading in this field because I think I would like to think that I'm showcasing to others what is what's possible. A hundred percent. I think your point about education and technology pulling people in different directions based on our socialization is really astute. You've got a sociology background, as do I. So there's a little bit of, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in how we're brought up and the norms that we see. And I, and I guess if you cast your mind back to even the classroom at school, you might have a, a female teacher taking you through the majority of things. But even your teacher, you know, if the if the projector stopped working, they'd call IT and it would usually be a dude that would come in and, and solve it. So even those very micro moments in children's lives where they they see that interaction happening even from the start, I think can lead to lead down the track to these these sort of broader systemic issues that, that we talked about. So I mean I I would like to see yeah, I would like to see sort of us being really aware of even those micro moments all through education and through life. And, you know, through media, but that's that's another conversation. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. I, I, I totally agree. And that's a, that is a very good microcosm of what people sort of are, are trained or what they what they start to expect to see in school. And it mm. sets up a whole lifetime of of thinking what what genders do what really good observation. Let's talk specifically about how diversity and inclusion sort of plays a role in Hex's work, because, you know, you champion, you know, next generation founders from all different backgrounds. I know that you have a project going with the tech company Atlassian, which is one of the largest productivity tool companies in on earth, I believe. And I, I know that part of that thinking is how can companies really do what they 
how can they really help the next generation of founders and how do they start to be on the right side of this equity discussion? Talk to us a little bit about how you make sure that your your cohorts are are equitable and what you do with companies. Yeah, I mean, we, we do hold ourselves to pretty high standards in terms of making sure the cohorts are equitable and also the people we put on screen or on stage, you know, are diverse as well. I mean, I'm I'm pretty proud that when we look through the number of experts and industry speakers that we we showcase to students, I think we're at 54% women, uh, you know, women representation. So we just want to make sure that when students are coming through these programs, they are seeing someone who kind of reminds them of themselves um, on stage doing doing the thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, when it comes to, I guess, working with companies, it's great to find mission aligned partners. We were so happy to partner with the Alessian Foundation as part of their mission to really empower millions more students who might not have access to great technology and, and education. So Alessian came on board for in a couple of different ways. One is that they actually help to validate, I guess, the, the content that's being put in front of students to make sure it is right up to date and it's the kind of content that they would want their future employees to be to be learning as well, which, you know, I think is a good industry signal for the kind of stuff that we that we teach. And then in terms of the equitable perspective, like they've also come on board to provide a bunch of scholarships to students. So um, we, we've currently got 50 left to give out to, to students from underrepresented or disadvantaged backgrounds to make sure that technology and innovation education isn't just something for the privileged. So I think it's great to find partners like that. And it's a really a good testament to their mission as well. In Australia, I think we 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 try to bake in purpose um, to our, you know, we're quite proud of our, our unicorns. I mean, you look at like the Canva, Canva example, we're quite proud of our tech companies that speak loudly about change and, and impact. So Atlassian Canva, they, they're kind of good beacons of uh, business for good and tech for good here in Australia. Yeah, I think that combines the impact and the equity lens and the ability to sort of provide insight into the tech world for people who may be unfortunately sort of locked out of it. You, know, you mentioned our Carmen sociology background. And one thing that I'd love to to dig down and ask you about is this sort of concept of cultural capital. You know, you, you mentioned that some of the outputs of your HEX students are that they gain confidence. You said that they, you mm-hmm. know, they can hold in rooms with professionals that they can feel, you know, comfortable and they can speak the language and communicate. And, you know, in a way, these are all soft skills and they're all soft skills that are sort of associated with exposure. You know, some some students grow up in Silicon Valley or they have parents or friends in, in the tech world and they learn to speak that language or they learn, you know, what term to use very young. And others have never had a family member in that in that world or have never been in that world and crossing that gap to actually be able to speak the language of tech is and be confident doing it is a bit is very daunting so i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how that works and and how that sort of plays into the idea of of supporting disadvantaged groups yeah i i think that that's a really good observation you know if you don't hear the language or the jargon in your daily life, looking at a career in that space is almost seems like an impossible gap to to bridge. And I think one of our jobs is to give students just enough that they can actually, you know, play in that space. And, and a lot of times, honestly, it's really just like jargon and translating. I mean, even little things in the startup world, and I'm sure some of your, your listeners would relate to this, but when I first started learning about what a seed round and a series A round. I was just like, this sounds so technical and complicated. 
And then you're just like, oh, it's just like round one, round two, round three. Like when you can <laughs> kind of, like not, you know, no, no shade to, to the wonderful investors and uh, listening. But I think, you know, sometimes when you can really, when we challenge ourselves to think about what jargon we're using thoughtlessly or kind of just casually and really understanding that from the perspective of someone who might not have grown up with it, it can be really powerful, that tran- that translation role. And so we do really practical things sometimes like teaching students how to write a double opt-in email introduction. Like just asking for a coffee catch-up can be so fraught with anxiety for students. And yet most of the professionals I know would absolutely jump at the chance to have a 20-minute Zoom call or coffee with a student who was curious about their industry. So I think it's just removing removing the perceived barriers, giving them just enough, I guess, digital etiquette um, to know how to interact with professionals in this space. And at the same time, I think the, the good thing is that professionals, we're also starting to move kind of down the down the ladder a bit in terms of the way we communicate on Slack, the way we communicate on Twitter. So if we're giving students a bit of a leg up and then professionals are starting to casualize their language, I'd like to think there's a great space in the middle where where we can connect more with young people and, and help them come into the world of work quicker. So, and I mean, they've got a lot to teach us too. It'd be interesting to sort of see how communication evolves in the next five to 10 years as as we change the way we communicate and, you know, who knows whether or not there'll be entire entire board papers written in memes. I wouldn't put it past some of my students. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, I, and I probably just completely aged myself by saying that. But I think, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to learn from both sides. Absolutely. I, I, lo- I love your point about meeting in the middle. It's true about the casualization. I think, I think especially in this pandemic era where there's a lot less formality and even in the sort of hoodie era of, of, of Silicon Valley, there's been a more push away from, yeah, from, from old school sort of corporate etiquette, more towards, like you say, digital etiquette. And so it's a really interesting observation. There's something, I mean, even like that as an example, you know, I remember speaking to a student from, um, I think it might have been from Malaysia. And I mean, my, my family is Chinese Malaysian. So, you know, that, that background is very familiar to me, but it's quite a hierarchical sort of society. You want to never upset your boss, you know, dressing well for work, obviously part of the, part of the vibe. And so even just telling an international student who was doing interviews in Australia for tech companies, that actually turning up in a full suit for that interview is incorrect digital etiquette at this time. Like it's such a strange and small thing to tell someone that I would challenge any hiring manager out there to think about how they would react if a student rocked up in a full suit for a tech role. But they'd immediately go, oh, they don't know the culture, they don't understand, da-da-da. And so I think that it's those little, again, it's the micro moments. I think all of this is just incremental changes and just helps all of us to communicate better and understand each other and give each other more chances. That is a fantastic example. And, and you know, as we, Australia is such a global country and, you know, it, it is sort of surrounded by all sorts of different types of cultures. And I think there's a sort of front row view from that perspective of different, different cultural norms. You know, I, I remember in my years teaching online to various global cultures it really is fascinating how those that sort of formality in education sometimes plays out in unusual contexts like your like mm-hmm. the suit where sometimes students don't want to ask questions of instructors even in an online class or something that's or or even of a TA there's sometimes this feeling of overly respecting or being thinking that it's you know, the the person is an authority and you can't ask a, a simple question yeah can I can, exactly. I can I share you can I share with you a little um, way that we address that exact thing yeah. that you just mentioned around the 
the, the fear of speaking to authority. When we when we were running um, or when we do run live intense programs with our students, we always start with music and we're always dancing the minute they come onto the, onto the screen. So our whole team is looking like idiots dancing um, <laughs> something silly. And I think even though they probably come in and be like, oh gosh, what have I done? What it actually does is that, you know, it, it reduces the barrier. It makes us a bit more approachable. It makes them realize that, yes, we might be like award-winning professionals, technology people with, you know, but like at the end of the day, we're human. And I think, you know, we, we sort of have this ethos of seriously fun learning. Like we want to really inject joy and humor and surprise into things that we do on, on our, on our programs and in our product. I mean, there's a, there's a link in one of our, in one of our courses that says very important, like exam preparation, even though we don't do exams. And it, I'm pretty sure it's a Rickroll, like, you know, that link changes regularly. So we, we try to, you know, add in these little sprinkles of fun and surprise because students are, you know, they're sophisticated digital consumers. They don't want to just be sitting in a boring LMS. So anyway, that was just a little, a little moment of how we tend to break that down. Yeah. We call it like, the backwards mullet approach to online learning. This is um, a very Australianism, I think, but it's like party in the front and then uh, business at the back. So make sure it's like, <laughs> like mil- military precision at the back, but then, yeah, make it look like a party. <laughs> That's really, really interesting. Yeah, you know, I, it, it, many years ago, I, I had a chance to teach in an international school in Shanghai and I remember I, yeah, your Rickroll story reminds me of a little, a little yeah. trick I did back then that I, it was the silliest, it was the silliest moment, but many of the students there were international. They weren't all, um, you know, Chinese nationals, but they were, they were mm-hmm. sort of the Asian school system. And many of them sort of took exams very seriously and they were sort of very formal. And I, on April Fool's Day, I gave them a sort of pop quiz about Greek mythology, which is what we were <laughs> learning in sixth yeah. grade class and the questions were all like incredibly just just things you would never know one was like how many snakes are on medusa's head right things like that (laughs) there's no way they would know and halfway through the test i said oh by the way take the first letter of each question and put them all together you get extra points and it said april fool's day you know and it was like it was and and i remember i mean i still remember it. it was probably 20 years ago the feeling of sort of as you say looking ridiculous and having them sort of feel a little ridiculous, but also trying to deflate that feeling that education has to be very, very serious and very, very assessment yeah. driven and creative. I still don't know. I might have traumatized a couple of kids. You that might I reckon that, I mean, I think there would have been a mix of, um, of relief and just like kind of like anger at you. I'm surprised I didn't like rush the, rush the, uh, the teacher's desk yeah. and be like, what are you doing? It was, there was probably a little thought of that. <laughs> I think it's but great. I love because, you know, people tell us we have to um, love what we do uh, when we get out of school and do jobs that make us light up and get out of bed. So I, d- I don't see why we can't, you know, infuse some of that joy into learning and, and, you know, get them to really look for, like, I want the energy that a kid has when they're scrolling through crypto videos on a Sunday night on YouTube. That's the energy I want for the courses that we put out. Like, I want them to look forward to, to you know, engaging with the stuff that we do that way, because that kid's probably not doing their marketing 101 reading. So, you know, it's there's, there's, that's if you kind of understand what I mean between the difference between like that self-directed, I'm looking forward to it versus someone told me I had to do this thing. 
hundred percent. I love that. Yeah. And that's really how you reach students who have, you know, infinite distractions, infinite access to technology, infinite access to digital media. I think you, it, educators really have to be very creative in, uh, to keep, keep students motivated because if we're not going to rely mm-hmm. on already in testing, there, <laughs> then there maybe have to be some other motivations to, to do the work and sort of lean into it. So I love that fun approach. Thank you. So, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but you're the first Australian guest we've had on EdTech Insiders. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your on-the-ground perspective about the EdTech landscape down under. You mentioned Canva as a Australian unicorn in the design space. There is one Australian EdTech unicorn, which is GoOne, a learning development platform for enterprises, but only one. And the investment scene has been relatively, you know, modest pre-COVID with with not that many large funding rounds. That said, Australia is a hotbed of innovation. All sorts of things are happening. There are almost a thousand EdTech companies at least listed in the space, at least. And many companies that are that are brewing and doing really interesting things, sort of waiting to grow and expand. Some of the ones that have crossed my radar are Forthrev and Forage and Compass, Terra, STEM Punks, which is about my favorite <laughs> ed tech games, like Steampunks. I love that. Um, <laughs> you've been in this world for quite a while. Tell us about what it's like being in the Australian ed tech scene, some of the founders and companies that may have caught your eye and sort of what what that experience has been. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for letting me be your first Aussie guest, and, and hopefully my accent hasn't been too distracting uh, for your listeners. Um, and you know, I, I also just you know on that on that point, I'd like to like to mention I'm dialing in from what is uh, Wurundjeri land here in Australia, so traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people, the Indigenous people of this land here in Melbourne. So I guess yeah, what, what's it been like in the Aussie ed tech sector? Well. You know, Go One is, is an incredible company. They're very inspirational for a lot of us. You know, the, the deals that they've done with big corporates, the rounds they've raised from Microsoft. I mean, and the founders are just great people. They, they pay it back and they pay it forward, mm-hmm. speaking, speaking on panels and, and sort of sharing their knowledge. So I think that's a real trait of, of this ecosystem is that even though we're, we can see each other kind of out of the corners of our eyes, some of those other ones that you said were coming up. I think we're all kind of excited for each other because we understand that this is such a big space and there's so many different parts of the problem that each of us can own. I mean, you know, you mentioned Fourth Rev. They're doing some great work in that more B2B space, like supporting the universities directly um, with their learning development. Forage is doing amazing work connecting students to virtual internships. So, you know, kind of kind of playing in a similar space to us, but in a with a different focus. They're looking to give them more hands-on hands-on experience with like a like large companies like a PwC or something. I don't actually know if that's one of their clients and maybe I can check that before we put that out. And I mean, you know, I want to call out like there's a great company called Entry Level, which is churning out great online courses around product management, kind of those those new new economy roles that maybe don't have a lot of courses for them yet. So things like growth marketing, product management, et cetera. But I mean, the sector's doubled basically in the last five years. So when I first came into this space, like I, I didn't identify as an EdTech founder. I'm just like, hey, I'm doing a thing. I'm doing a business. It's great. And then as I started to get to know, you know, what else is going on and start to really get more immersed into um, understanding the problems that were being faced by our university sector and our teachers. I mean, you know, we've had some really, really significant lockdowns as I know, I'm sure the rest of the world has, but Melbourne in particular has been, <laughs> we, we were pretty Pretty locked down. And I guess one of the real challenges I've seen from an ed tech space is our uni sector missing our international students. 
So Australia has so such a big reliance on international students coming into our market, like students from all around Asia Pacific, from around the world, joining um, joining our universities. So that's been a big loss for, I guess the you know just even walking around the, the city and and missing the uni university students. But it's really driven change and a need for fast change um, from the from the universities themselves. So some have responded you know, very quickly. Others have struggled more, love working with our university partners, but I like to think of us as kind of that annoying friend that gives them an elbow in the ribs occasionally to say, hey, come on, we're going this way. You know, I think from an edtech perspective, it's been a great opportunity to show confidence in what you're offering and to solve a problem that's different for industry than it was, you know, a few years ago. But yeah, I mean, you know, very supportive of, of all of the EdTech founders in this local market. If any of them ever listen to this, come and say hi. Let's get a coffee. But you know, I think what, what's what's happening over in the, in the states. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's really exploding. And we look to the states a lot for inspiration. Um, companies like Outlier and On Deck. I mean, we're, we're keeping an eye on those guys to see what they're doing next. Yeah, I mean, the US is is gone quite crazy during the, the COVID era in terms of tech investment, tech startup, the number of startups and the size of rounds have all gone up very quickly over the last couple of years. And, and you know, as somebody who's been in the field for quite a while, it's been, you know, we had a lot of IPOs last year, mm-hmm. as I'm sure. I think there's a feeling worldwide, and but you definitely see this in the US and, and in India uh, and in Europe, where sort of ed tech has finally hit its stride, you know, with COVID, as yeah. you mentioned, with COVID and all the disruption, the decrease in university enrollment, in especially international enrollment, the the closing of schools, the forcing of students online all oh, over, yeah. all up and, and down people, the spectrum. Well, and people are looking for alternatives to, to you know, those traditional courses and degrees. I, I know that. Or they're taking, or they're taking, as we said before, gap years because they just don't, they don't have the confidence that they're going to have the experience that they want from their degree. So um, it's definitely been, you know, a, 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 I think it's been student driven a lot, you know, their choices. And then also just, uh, I do really feel for the educators in schools and, and universities. I mean, they've been working so hard. They've, they've copped it. <laughs> they've really copped it. So uh, lots of, lots of uh, sending lots of love to, to the educators. <laughs> yes. Yes. I will second that. It's been a very difficult couple of years for educators and we're seeing, you know, mass burnout, I think, all over the world. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned gap year, and I just want to have I ask you one more question about this innovation gap year approach, because I, I find it so exciting and interesting. You know, we're, we're mentioning the COVID era, we're talking about how everything has sort of been turned upside down. And nobody exactly knows if it's going to right itself or, or continue to, to change. This concept of an innovation gap year of taking time away from formal education without losing your place in formal education is really very exciting, you know, to me. I, it feels like something I would have loved to do when I was a, a university or, or high school student. And that I feel like would resonate very, very strongly with, with the millennial generation as well that is not looking for a super traditional career, linear career at all. I, I'd love to hear how your students have reacted to that pivot to the gap year. What do they tell you about this concept of stepping away but being able to earn university credit? Yeah, so I guess, you know, what we're hearing from students is that they do 
I mean, firstly, right now, the students coming out of high school, like a lot of them just need a break. Like that's, that's just quite right. a, a standard it. thing. A lot of them are saying, we just need a break. It's not, you know, we don't want to jump straight into another year of what we just had. But I think we do see there's a high trend of students jumping degrees, right? I think it's like up to 80% of, of students like will change majors or swap degrees or something like that. There's a lot of, a lot of time and money and energy, I believe, wasted in those years of being unsure or choosing the wrong thing or just taking what you got into and then swapping it to something else. What we're hearing is that students want to maybe get to know themselves a bit better, um, maybe dabble in a few things. So the use case, <laughs> like, you know, the use case that I'd like to see is a student saying to their parents, hey, mom, dad, I want to go backpack around Bali, but don't worry, I'm going to do hex ed on, on my phone and my laptop while I'm away. And when I come back, I'll go to the University of Technology in Sydney and get a semester of credit. I want them to be able to do hex ed while they are bartending. I want them to do it while they're gaming half the day. I want them to be able to do it while they're doing other things. So I think the delivery being online, but also with enough in real time engagement to keep them kind of going through the cohorts and, and hitting their their milestones, it's, it's a fine balance between giving them just enough space and then giving them the, the learning outcomes. Uh, and I think one of the, the little, the thing that makes it even more engaging is that we actually do encourage them to work on things that they're already passionate about. So the very first unit is called the you unit. It's literally about them, you know, your communication style, your leadership values, um, things that I think students didn't necessarily get a chance to, to learn straight up especially those from maybe underprivileged backgrounds, they wouldn't get the luxury of reflecting on themselves necessarily and what they love. Then we, we actually give them a money unit, basic financial literacy, your money, the world's money, new money, what, what, you know, what is crypto? Like, so there's a little bit of just understanding the flow of business models and how it can affect them and, and how it could be fun and, and interesting. The technology units, just how you know, workplace tech, low-code, no-code tools, we want them to walk away with understanding how to use real things that they could use in, in the workplace. Um, innovation is, is the sort of the entrepreneurship piece. So getting them really upskilled in how to put together a pitch deck and do design thinking. And then finally, my favorite one is the future unit, which is all about understanding, I guess, your place in the world of tech and, and your obligations to people, planet, society, thinking about the ethics of what you're about to build, thinking about, you know, the people around you. So, you know, I think all of that together is almost like, a new undergraduate course delivered online in a fun way. It's co-designed with young people and co-designed with industry partners like Atlassian. And they can do it from the beach. That's that's kind of my goal. <laughs> so I want them to be able to have that exploration. And then when they're ready, if they want to, roll the credit back over to, to something that could be uh, their, their university degree. I'm sold. Sign me up. When can I start? <laughs> so incredibly exciting and what what a value proposition for for uh, high school and college to learn about themselves the world money technology communication it's it's really an exciting vision and i agree i think that should be the first semester of college for everybody for everyone <laughs> right like i mean just you know just professional communication skills and 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 just being not a bad person at work <laughs> like yeah, right. basics but if someone doesn't tell you <laughs> how to, you know, treat your co-workers nicely. You might go in there and do things you didn't realize. So anyway, I'd like, and I guess in, in going through this, I'm hoping that we then surface 
you know, that generation of leaders that when they do choose to go and do their science degree or their law degree, or if they go and do a social enterprise, like they've got a better understanding and grounding of who they are and, and what they're, what the impact they're going to make. It's a, it's a really beautiful vision. And I love how you're combining, you know, beach bartending, traveling, backpacking with learning in, a, you know, in ways that are, that are really different than, than traditional higher education, but very, I think, powerful, especially for adolescents and people who are who are trying to find their way in the world. I, I, it's really, really an exciting idea. We finish up the podcast each uh, episode with two questions. The first one I'd like to ask you is, what is the most exciting trend that you see in the edtech landscape right now that you think our listeners should keep their eye on? Yeah. So I, I think that like the trend of the trend of community-based learning, I mean, is is Alex, I'm going to just pause you like, I'm going to maybe throw two at you and then you can kind of tell me, maybe we can choose one. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, I think, you know, delivering great content online is, is almost like if you talk about web two, web three, it's kind of like education two. <laughs> education three, I think will be some really solid cohort based learning. I know that there's some leaders in this space and I'm not saying necessarily anything new, but I'd like to understand how we can better predict and, and um, personalize that that peer-based, cohort-based learning. I think that's something that will be very interesting in the future, especially as students, you know, they, they start to build stuff together from a very, very early age. And another trend that I'd love to, you know, see uh, emerge is, especially in the, in the higher education space, is, is kind of the virtual campuses. Like, how are we going to see the concept of the campus and all the great things that we do on the quad and, you know, when you go for drinks and when you go to like all of your student clubs and societies, how are we going to translate that for a global population of students who might be learning with their peers around the world who may or may not get on planes to go to an international university? Um, I'd like to really see some creative thinking and you know innovation in the virtual campus space. So uh, a couple of things I'm looking at there. And, and, and our, our last question is, you know, we've learned a lot today about gap years and about uh, training for, for underrepresented groups and about working internationally. Um, what is one book or blog or Twitter feed that you would recommend for someone just who wants to go deeper into some of the subjects that we've uh, talked about today? I'm going to recommend a book that has literally nothing to do with education. <laughs> But but has you know it really I really enjoyed reading it from the perspective of someone building something and thinking about how you build it. So I mean it's a great book. It's been around for a while. But I love Shoe Dog um, by Phil Knight. I thought it was just such a great story of entrepreneurship. And I think there's there's bits in there about the people that you invite on your journey and and who those key people are. I mean I've got a couple of great right hand humans uh, Jack and Chris who I couldn't do anything without and it talks about you know falling in love with your problem and and really sort of thinking through the creativity of your product solution so I mean nothing to do with education but a lot to do with entrepreneurship and I think if people are curious about getting into startups I mean that's a must read it's probably but yeah I assume you've probably all read it already I haven't but I've heard you great haven't? things about you, it <laughs> It's good fun. I mean, I would never have thought of myself as like being interested in sneakers, but um, the story, the story was cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really interesting. Fantastic. I love what you're doing at Hex and congratulations on the recent round. Jeanette, Chia, thank you so much for being here on EdTech Insiders. Thank you for having me, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. 
For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.